Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read there in uh, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, and reading at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who is the sharp, two-edged sword. Last week, I came across the following story. Winter was coming, and a hunter went to shoot a bear out of which he planned to make a warm coat. By and by, he saw a bear coming toward him. He raised his gun and took aim. Wait, said the bear. This is a story where bears can talk. Wait, said the bear. Why do you want to shoot me? Because I'm cold, said the hunter. But I'm hungry, the bear replied. So maybe we can reach a compromise. In the end, the hunter was enveloped with the bear's fur, and the bear had eaten his dinner. That's a joke. Just, you you can laugh. The author who shared this story made the point that we always lose out when we start to compromise with sin. This morning, we're continuing our studies in seven dangers facing a healthy gospel church. And we're looking today at the danger of compromising with the world. The danger of compromising with the world. We're looking at these verses then under three headings. The description, the danger, and then the declaration. First we have the description. Look at verse 12. Here the risen Jesus provides a description of who he is. We can start by noting who the letter is addressed to at the beginning of verse 12. It's addressed to an angel. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been saying that that word angel doesn't simply refer to a heavenly being. It it can also refer to a messenger, one who speaks on behalf of another. And that is the sense in which the word has been used here in Revelation 2. This letter is addressed to a messenger. And it's addressed to the messenger or angel of the church in Pergamum. It's addressed to a church leader and to the congregation whom he represents as a whole. And the particular congregation on this occasion is the the congregation, the church that is based in the city of Pergamum. Pergamum lay around 70 miles north of Smyrna that we looked at last week and about 15 miles inland. It was a magnificent city and was very much the intellectual capital of Asia with a library boasting over 200,000 volumes. It was a very pagan city with temples and shrines and altars dedicated to gods such as Zeus, Athena, Dionysius and Asclepius, the serpent god of healing. Due to the prevalence of the worship of Asclepius, it became a place where many would make pilgrimages in order to receive healing, in order to receive medical attention. And finally, it was the leading centre of the Roman imperial cult that insisted that the the emperor be worshipped as saviour and lord. We can also note who the letter is addressed from in the second half of verse 12. It's come from the one who is the sharp two-edged sword. As we've studied these letters, we've said that they have all come from the risen and exalted Jesus. In Revelation 1, he's described as having a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth, a reference to his word of judgment, his word of destruction. On this occasion, he's spoken about as being the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. The same language is used in Revelation 19. Revelation 19:15, we read, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
Then in Revelation 19.21 we read, The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the throne. In other words, this is no gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is the Jesus who wields the sword of judgment. This is the Jesus who has the authority to destroy his enemies. Friends, as we consider this verse, we're being given a reminder of who Jesus is. That's what we see in Revelation 2. The risen Jesus reminds the church in Pergamum that he's the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. He's reminding them that he's the one who has the authority to judge and the authority to destroy. That is his timely reminder to a church who, as we'll soon see, were very much involved in compromise with the world. That is such an important reminder for ourselves. The risen Jesus is the one who has the authority to judge the authority to destroy. As we go through the Bible, we see that Jesus is the one who can restore, the one who can revive, the one who can renew, the one who can refresh with just a word. The words of Jesus bring life to those who are his people, but he's also the one whose words can destroy and bring death to his enemies. He is not, as C.S. Lewis famously said, a tame lion. And the question that I want to begin today asking friends is, do you know this Jesus? I'm not asking, do you know about him? I'm asking, do you know him personally? Do you know the Jesus who has the authority to destroy? The Jesus who has the authority to judge? Do you know the Jesus who is not a tame lion? Do you know the Jesus who is not just gentle and mild, but the Jesus who sits on the judgment seat? Do you, do you know this Jesus? Then second, we come to the danger. Look at verses 13 and 16, where the risen Jesus highlights the danger facing the church in Pergamum. Verse 13, we hear the commendation. The risen Jesus begins by telling the church in Pergamum that he knows where they live. Verse 13, He knows that they live in the place where Satan has his throne. He knows that they live in a place which is very hostile to Christ. A place that is full of hatred to Christ. He knows that they live in a place where pagan deities such as Zeus and Athena and Dionysius and Asclepius were all worshipped. He knows that they live in a place where unless you participated in the Roman imperial cult, you were seen as a traitor to Rome. He knows where they live. He knows that they live in a dark place, a difficult place, a dangerous place to be a Christian. And the risen Jesus continues by commending the church in Pergamum for their profession and perseverance in that pagan place. He commends them for their profession. They're holding fast to his name. They they, they are those who are confessing Jesus. They are those who are clinging to Jesus in a dark place, in a difficult place, in a dangerous place. And he also commends them for their perseverance. They they haven't denied the faith, even though one of their faithful members, this man called Antipas, has been martyred for his commitment to Jesus. Despite their awareness of this man's martyrdom, they are continuing to persevere as followers of Jesus. Stop there. Can you just imagine if one day Nuck wasn't sitting on his chair there? And we said, where's Nuck? And Laura Jane said, well, he was put to death for his faith. 
by the local authorities. Would you keep coming back to church if that had happened? Would you remain faithful to Jesus if that had happened? There's these Christians in Pergamum. An Antipas' seat is empty. And they know what's happened to him. And they're still persevering in the faith. There are those with a profession and there are those with perseverance and Jesus commends them for this. But we can move from the commendation to the concern in verses 14 and 15. Up until now things have been very positive. And then there is when Jesus changes tone. He says to them, but I have a few things against you. The church in Pergamum have a few issues that are concerning to Jesus. He goes on to express his concern that there are some who are holding to the teaching of Balaam. Verse 14, Jesus draws their attention back to the past. In the Old Testament, we find the prophet Balaam being hired by the Moabites to curse the people of Israel. But Balaam is prevented by the Lord from doing so. And so Balaam finds another way to undermine the Lord's people as he encourages the Moabites to intermingle with the Israelites. And seduce them into compromising when it comes to their commitment to the Lord. And the result is that the people of Israel end up engaging in idolatry and immorality with the Moabites. And and find themselves facing a devastating plague. And Jesus applies that to the situation in Pergamum. He says that there are people in this church who are holding to the teaching of Balaam. They were saying that it was possible to participate in the imperial cult. Participate in all the immoral, idolatrous feasts associated with it and still be a Christian. They were saying it was possible to be a follower of Jesus and a follower of Rome. They were saying you can have a foot in the camp of Christ and a foot in the camp of the world. And Jesus goes further and he expresses his concern that there are some who are holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Look at verse 15. Now we don't know anything about this other group. All we know is that they taught something very similar to those who were holding to the teaching of Balaam. They were claiming that a Christian could make compromises with the imperial cult and still be a Christian. They, like those holding to the teaching of Balaam, were saying, yep, a Christian can have their foot in the camp of the world and also a foot in the camp of Christ. You could do both. And Jesus is concerned about this. And we can move from the concern to the council in verse 16. There isn't Jesus counsels the church in Pergamum as to what they should do. Look at the beginning of verse 16. The council is simple. It's straightforward. It's concise. They must repent. That word repent just means change your mind. Change your direction. Pergamum Christians have been displaying a belief and a behaviour that claim that it was possible to compromise with the world and still be a Christian. And Jesus is saying to them, I want you to repent of this. He's saying to them, I want you to change your minds about this. He's saying, I want you to change the direction you've been going in regarding this. And he goes on to warn the church in Pergamum about what will happen if they don't follow his counsel. Look again at verse 16. He tells them that he will come to them soon. That doesn't refer to his coming at the end of time. This refers to a coming in history. An imminent coming. And he says that when he comes to them, he will make war against them with the sword of his mouth. We've already seen that Jesus is the one who wields the sword of judgment. 
the one who can destroy and judge his enemies. And now he's saying that he will wield that sword against those who are professing to be his people if they continue to make compromises with the world. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being confronted with the danger of compromising with the world. The danger of compromising with the world. That's what we see here in Revelation 2. The church in Pergamum was a church that was holding fast to the name of Jesus. They weren't denying the faith. Even in a hostile environment, even in a Christ-hating environment, Jesus commends them for that. But they're beginning to compromise with the world. And they're beginning to think that they could have a foot in the camp of Christ, the camp of the world. They were beginning to think that they could profess to be followers of Jesus and participate in the imperial cult. And they're now facing the very real, the very imminent prospect of Jesus coming to judge them. Jesus coming to make war against them. Joel Beakey writes, Satan defeats God's people in ways that are far subtler than mere military conquests. As Israel was corrupted from within through sexual immorality and religious unfaithfulness, so the church in Pergamum is in danger from forces already at work in her ranks. Thus Jesus warns them, be alert to what is happening among you. You are in Satan's domain and the devil is at work. You resisted him when he attacked through the front door of persecution, but now he's entered by the back door of compromise. He is trying to destroy your distinctiveness. He is trying to bring the world into your church. He is trying to bring you into an alliance with the world, and that will prove to be your downfall. And friends, that is such an important caution for ourselves. Juan Sanchez puts it like this. In the West today... We likely won't be killed for our faith. But the temptation to compromise is still very real. Every day we are tempted in a thousand little ways to cave in and just go along to get along. Say that last bit again. Every day we are tempted in a thousand little ways to cave in and just go along to get along. Compromise with the world is very easy. Compromise in order to fit in and get along is a danger facing every single Christian, myself included, and every single congregation, the high free included. We're probably all familiar with the story of Eric Little and his refusal to compromise. You remember how he was, he was encouraged, he was urged to to run, to take part in the Olympics on a Sunday, and yet he refused. But sadly, there are stories of many professing Christians who who do compromise with the world, sometimes with disastrous long-term consequences. I remember one minister in Caithness, and he was telling me about a man who used to be very active in his congregation. This man was at everything. This man was involved in the life of the church. This man was immersed in the life of the church. But he was then offered Sunday work at the Dunray nuclear site. Now this man was already on a very good wage with Dunray. And his wife was on a very good wage with Dunray. But he was told, you'll get double time if you do the Sunday work. And so this man reasoned in his head that he would take on a few Sunday shifts. And 
be in church in the days when he wasn't working. And as the years went on, as the months really went on, these Sunday shifts rapidly increased and the church attendance decreased. Twenty years on, this man hasn't been in church for a decade or two. Twenty years on, this man doesn't even call himself a Christian. That compromise had consequences. And maybe today you can see ways that you've compromised with the world and maybe drifted as a Christian. And today's giving you an opportunity to repent. Today's giving you an opportunity to change direction. Maybe today's giving you an opportunity, friend, to just slam on the brakes and say, I'm going no further on this road of compromise that I've been going down. I'm, I'm putting on the brakes. This morning, I want to ask each of us as individuals and as a congregation, are there, are there compromises that we're making in our Christian walk? Are we trying to maintain that unhappy but impossible balance between having a foot in the camp of Christ and a foot in the camp of the world? Or are we those who say, and you know Donnie Rankin loves to quote him, are we those who say with William Borden, I'm going to follow after Jesus without reserve. I'm going to follow after Jesus without retreat. And I'm going to follow after Jesus without regret. Third and finally, we come to the declaration. Look at verse 17. Here there is in Jesus declares what will happen to those who act on his words. At the beginning of verse 17, we hear the exhortation. Over the last two weeks, we've said that throughout the Gospels, we hear Jesus issuing the call, let the one who has ears to hear, listen. It functions as an exhortation to a person to open their mind and open their heart to what he is saying and to act on it, put it into practice. And here there is in Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He is exhorting the church in Pergamum to open their minds and open their hearts to what he's saying and put it into practice, act on it. And we can move then from that exhortation to the encouragement. Look at the second half of verse 17. There isn't Jesus now speaks about the one who conquers. That language of conquering or overcoming is a way of describing a living faith, an active faith, a faith that just perseveres to the end. On this occasion it describes the person who says, I'm not going to compromise with the world. I'm not going to have a foot in two camps. I'm going to be all in when it comes to Jesus. And here there is in Jesus tells the church in Pergamum that if they conquer and put what he's been telling them into practice, he will give them some of the hidden manna. If you go back to the Old Testament, you see that God supplied his people with manna, bread from heaven, as they wandered through the wilderness. And by the first century, there was a belief among Jews that when the Messiah came, he would feed his faithful people with bread from heaven, hidden manna, manna still to be revealed. That is what we find Jesus promising the Christians in Pergamum. He's saying that if they hear what he is saying and put what he is saying into practice, he will give them some of that hidden manna. He will bring them to the end time feast. 
And the risen Jesus goes on to tell the church in Pergamon that if they conquer and put what he's been telling them into practice, he will not just give them some of the hidden manna, he will also, look what he says, give them a hidden, a, a white stone with a new name on it. In Jesus' day, a white stone or a white pebble would function as a means of invitation to a feast, a means of entrance to a feast if I wanted to invite Nori to to a great banquet at the manse. I, w- I wouldn't say, you want to come over to the manse, Noddy? I wouldn't give him a text saying, you want to come over? I would hand over a white stone to him and give him a wee wink. And then he would come to the manse store a few days later. He would hand over his white stone. And here's Jesus, and he's telling Christians in Pergamum that if they hear what he's saying, and if they put what he's saying into practice, they will receive an invitation and a means of entrance To that end time feast where the hidden manna will be dished out. It's interesting to note that scholars are divided over what's meant by the new name that's written on that white stone. Some suggest that it's a new name that's given to the believer. Others suggest that it's a new name that is given to Jesus. And others, just to complicate things, say that it's a new name that is given to both the believer and to Jesus. At the end of the day, we don't fully know what it means... The key point is that the white stone is marked in such a way that it allows those who possess it to gain entrance to Jesus' end time feast. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we're being given an encouragement to listen to and act on what Jesus is saying. That's what we see here in Revelation 2. The risen Jesus has commended the church in Pergamum for holding fast to his name, for not denying the faith. He's then expressed his concern that they're beginning to compromise with the world. They're trying to have a foot in two camps. And he has counseled them to repent of this, change their minds, change their direction about what they've been doing up until now. And he then exhorts them to listen to and act on what he says. And he encourages them with the words that if they hear what he's saying and put what he's saying into practice, he will give them some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name on it. He will bring them to his final end time feast. And that is such an encouragement to ourselves today. There's a phenomenon, we can almost call it an anxiety, and maybe the younger ones here are familiar with it especially, but uh, an anxiety known as fear of missing out. They call it FOMO. And it can be very tempting for Christians to make compromises with the world so that they won't miss out. Maybe miss out on a job. Maybe miss out on... A social event. Maybe even miss out on a life partner, a husband or a wife. But in Revelation chapter 2 we find Jesus holding out the promise of a place at his end time feast. And he says, you don't want to miss out on this. And I don't want you to miss out on this. But you're putting your place at this feast in jeopardy if you compromise with the world and try having a foot in two camps. Tony Reinke writes, The fear of missing out on eternal life is the one fear of missing out worth losing sleep over for ourselves, our friends, our family, our neighbours. 
But if you're in Christ, the sting of missing out is eternally removed. Fear of missing out plagues sinners embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and he promises us no eternal loss. All that we lose will be found in him. All that we miss will be summed up in him. Eternity will make up for every other pinch and loss we suffer in this momentary life. The doctrine of heaven proves it. The new creation is the restoration of everything broken by sin in this life. The reparation of everything we lose in this world. The reimbursement of everything we miss out in our social media feeds. So this morning, the risen Jesus is exhorting us as individuals and as a congregation not to be compromising with the world when it comes to him. And he encourages us to think of the glorious reward that awaits those who listen to and act on what he says. And the question that I put to you in closing, friends, is, are we listening Are we listening to what he's saying? Are we saying, I I am not going to try having a foot in two camps anymore. I'm going to be all in when it comes to Jesus. I'm going to follow him now. No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray.